0: Hi, I'm Ruby Kamkani, and welcome to Bang to Rights, the podcast from multimedia journalism students and staff at Manchester Metropolitan University. I'm joined by my fellow student, Tanya Ulla. Hi Tanya.
1: yeah. And today we also have Zara Gallimore with us in the studio.
0: Hi. Hi. And we're also joined by one of our multimedia journalism tutors, Pete Murray. Hi Pete.
2: Hi, hi Ruby. So, where are we? Well, we're recording this first episode of the new season of Bang to Rights in the studio on the MMU campus. It's been a while, got to admit it's been a while, but it's very good to be back. We haven't really been running the podcast regularly since the start of the pandemic, but now, in this new format and in our new studio, we've got lots lined up for the coming season.
0: Brilliant. So, um, Tanya, what's coming up today? So,
1: in a moment, we're going to speak to Alison Miller who's the director of a film that's just about to be released on the life of the young investigative journalist, Lera McKee, who was shot dead while covering a protest in Derry in 2019.
3: We'll hear from Nick Newman of the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at Oxford University about their annual digital news report, because amongst other things, Nick and the Reuters Institute have a lot to say this year about how young people get their news via social media, as well as how more people actively avoid the news. And here to reflect on that, we also have Jennifer Jones, who's a reporter at the Scottish Sun and has years of experience with social media, both the positives and the negative sides of it.
0: Yes, so stay with us here on Bang to Rights. But first, let's hear just a little of Alison Miller's film. It's entitled simply Lyra.
4: No, Test, Testing, testing. My name is Leon Mckee. I'm a freelance journalist from Northern Ireland. Oh, My passion in life is for investigative journalism.
0: <laughs> we were only there for eight minutes
1: from start to finish. I turned to Lera to say, let's move up
0: further, because I think they're going to rush. And
5: she wasn't there.
3: My heart just
0: broke there and then been killed? Police investigating the murder of journalist Lyra McKee. Police blame the so-called new IRA.
3: Happened on the 21st anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. I'm trying to piece together what happened. You're coming with me on the journey as I try to
0: find answers. I'm delighted to say that we can speak to the film director, Alison Miller now. Alison, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you. Brilliant. Um, so can I ask, what was your relationship like with Lyra? I I first
6: met Lyra was a really good friend and someone who I completely adored her work. You know, she was incredible. I first met her when I moved back from London to Belfast. I was making a documentary about the a rape crisis centre here that was under threat of closure. And as I was filming there was this young woman in the room who seemed to be doing an investigation into the centre and stuff but I, well I discovered that later I, I actually thought she was on a work placement a school placement because Lara never looked her age she always always looked young and I remember going up to her and saying um, oh hello are you on a school placement or something and uh, which sounds really patronising but and she just went no no my name's Lara McKay and I've just won the Sky Young Journalist of the Year Award and uh, I was like oh that was me put my place because suddenly I realized at 16 she had literally been crowned the Sky Young Journalist of the Year for her work in Northern Ireland so I was like wow and then we became best friends because we were just just she was just when you were around her you just couldn't not you know be completely besotted because she was always an energy ball she was full of ideas she was funny nothing was a problem I mean I mean, if you want a story told, she was a digger. She had more FOIs on the go than anybody I've ever met on the planet. She was always um, just digging, amazing person. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I think it's clear like how much impact she had about journalism. So can you just emphasize like how important you think this film is for Northern Ireland?
6: I think when she died, like, she was supposed to be coming to my house for dinner with Sarah, partner, the next night. So when Sarah called me at midnight that night from the hospital in Derry to say she was dead, um, I think from that moment on, there was a group of us like Dara McIntyre have made many films with as well. We were all very close and we didn't know what to do because we really felt that a shining light had been extinguished in a way that, not just because she was so talented and young and amazing, but just she did bring a certain voice. She was looking at the debris, about she was looking into corners for things that were unfinished. Things that after Good Friday and peace, there was lots of stuff left behind, like her work on intergenerational trauma, suicide, uh, or LGBTQ work. Um, and not even that, just even finding people who had been ignored or kind of their stories hadn't been told because everything was going to be gorgeous and we were all going to move on. But there was unfinished business and people who had been left without, unable to tell their story. And I think I really hope when people see the film that they will understand and learn you know I think her approach to people, the reason why so many people were helped, wanted to help to make the film was Leah went into people's homes she had the she she had the good grace and she knocked on the doors and she respected them and she went to anybody's house didn't matter what side of the community or anywhere, but she left that world intact and left those people intact. so when I went to calling sick and I speak to. You? Everyone said, yes, she was great. She respected the time, my story. She gave me a voice. And I think that's one thing that I really admired about her work and I tried to do in my work, but also with the fact that she had this incredible drive that she came from our doing single parent family. She had hearing difficulties. She overcame so many things and just went, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to let that get in my way. You can do this. You can do this. It doesn't matter. If you've, you know, your parents own half of London or whether you uh, have, you know, 50p, if you've got drive and dreams, you don't give up, you can do it. So I think she's, there's an inspirational note for everyone to take from that film and from Lyra and her work, because that's what she gave to me and she gives to so many other people. Was it? She said brick walls aren't made to keep you out they're made to see how badly you want it.
2: How did you just kind of piece the story together? Because it it came together from kind of fragments from from Lyra's life, really, didn't it?
6: Yeah, it was really difficult. Um, We started making a one hour for Dispatches, one hour documentary for Channel 4, um, which was gonna be a film that we're gonna play at the first anniversary of Lyra's murder. And then before that happened, before, well, before we got to the end of it, we'd started filming. And we didn't have that much archiving material. We had bits and pieces, but not a lot. And then um, coming up to the anniversary of her first anniversary, her mum, John passed away. And also COVID struck. So there was a lot of stuff where we were all completely broken by that point. So we stopped and as we stopped, then suddenly that's whenever we got a second wind because my editor, Chloe Lamborn, who cut an amazing film called Forsama, she came on board and um, we started digging around and that's when we discovered some dictaphones and some recordings of Lyra. And then we put a SOS out to all our mates and we got some more mobile phone footage, some archive. Nicola, her sister, went to the attic and found some old VHS of her as a little girl. So it suddenly gave us a chance to try and construct, there's three layers to the film really, the first there is uh, Lyra McKee the entrance point to the film in the sense that everybody knows is her murder what happened and how the world woke up to that news that morning but then who was she? So that's why we wanted to take the audience back and grow Lyra up and that's when we used her voice to be able to narrate her own film with that and her written word. So we, it was really important to us that we tried to let Lyra tell you her story in her own way, um, which is, is why the I would say the one hour of the main bulk of the film is Lyra talking to the audience in, in her own way. So I think that was hard. The second layer was really laying a landscape in uh, Northern Ireland, sort of past, present, future, whatever, in the sense that Lyra's work, a lot of it was started way back with Bally Murphy and, uh 71 so we were taking the audience through her and uh, all, the, all her work through her eyes so we'd weave that through but that was kind of a slightly easier because the people i went back to film the mom played her interviews to them and we you know we we almost did it as if lear was still in the room uh and then the third layer was the ongoing narrative of the police investigation and the family and her partners there all left looking for answers and the search for the gunmen and the various people involved. So that was the third layer. But, um, yes, it wasn't easy. Um, I think I've constructed some really hard ones. In my, life. I did a film called The Disappeared years ago, which was about people who were murdered and disappeared and secretly buried in mostly bogs around Ireland and I worked with Diane McIntyre, as amazing journalist on that. That was a very difficult structure. But this was... Um, now, this was the worst structure, probably, because, yeah, and because it's personal, you're trying to listen to her voice every day and and work out. Luckily, because I knew her so well, I, I knew a lot of what she was trying to do, so that was good. But, yeah, no, it wasn't easy, but that was kind of the thought process behind the structure of the film, really, But trying to layer those three layers and make them all play
0: at the same time. That's brilliant. Um, thank you. It was really informative, Um hearing about that, Alison. I just wanted to um, kind of get a few tips from you for any aspiring journalists that are listening to our podcast today. Um, what would you say, um, potentially uh, some, some information or some advice that Leah has given you in the past, uh, what would you say is like the number one thing for aspiring journalists to keep in mind?
6: I think what I've, I've learned from Lyra and probably from other people and even myself, because my, I didn't, I set off as an, I set out in life as an observational filmmaker. I went to the National Film and Television School and a lot of my films were very observational, where you sort of, I park up with my camera and move into your house and film and whatever. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't move into invest, more investigative stuff until I met Darren McIntyre and we did a um, film about uh, the cover up of abuse in the Catholic Church. And then we won a bafta for that which was unbelievable i mean very honored but we didn't know i mean we just you know we just set off to make this film and i certainly was new to it but i learned a lot from him and Lyra then i think what we've i've learned from all of them i think and certainly from Lyra is she really took time to look around her in her own community for stories that probably have a universal theme so i think Sometimes people look far away and think, oh, what's happening in America? Or, what's happening, blah, blah. Sometimes incredibly powerful and important stories start right under your nose. They're right outside your front door. And I think walking the streets, sitting in coffee shops, talking to people. You know, I think Lira was not one who did things by Google. She walked the streets a lot. I walk the streets a lot. I listen and talk to people. I'm nosy. She was curious too. I think it's about listening. Sometimes I think the reason why she wrote "Suicide the Six Our Babies" in those big pieces was because she was reacting to her community and what she saw outside her front door. And there's never been a more important and crucial time for journalists to be re- reacting to what's happened outside their front door, what they're seeing outside around them, because we're, you know, we're in a terrible place with, with all the, you know, the austerity, with the bills, with money, with oh, it's a mess, but outside your front door can be a uh, can be a university themed story if it's about a mother struggling or if it's about a, a child with mental health issues there's things that when you meet people and they're they're willing to tell you their story and go on a journey with you there's a lot of power in something just right in front of you you don't have to jump on a plane you can find it at the end of your street
0: Alison Miller, thanks very much for coming on to Rights. A reminder that you can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We're also on SoundCloud at MMU Northern Quota. That's all one word, MMU Northern Quota. And you'll find much more about our work and reporting by our students on the latest news, fashion, sport, politics and entertainment from around Manchester if you go to thenorthernquota.org.
1: Now, as you mentioned at the start of the podcast, our students have been hearing that hearing this month from Nick Newman of the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. Nick's a former news editor at the BBC and is now one of the researchers and authors of the annual Digital News Report.
3: Yes, it's a deep dive into what news people are reading, watching, listening to across the world. And especially this year, looking at how different age groups access news. Nick says one of the biggest changes this year is the rise of TikTok as a news source. Why do people like TikTok?
7: It's uh, it's really addictive uh, and uh, fantastic presentation, so really compelling um, sound and vision and mix of media. But um, pretty much everyone says it's not really the place you go for trustworthy, credible news. So it's definitely got a credibility gap. Um, and many people, uh, also, it's not like everyone is using TikTok. It's, some people definitely don't think it's an appropriate place for uh, for news. Um, uh, that lack of professionalism uh, and and disliking this this sort of compression of news into these little sort of nuggets and the lack of depth that's that's
0: going on on TikTok. Okay, so let's get into it. Do either of you use TikTok or Instagram for news?
3: <laughs> yeah, um I love TikTok to be honest. But I think I do like the rise in verified accounts now on TikTok like I T V, BBC. There's also quite a few broadcast journalists that have created account and show like the behind the scenes side as well of their like day at their work and stuff and I think it's very interesting, but there is also a lot of misinformation on TikTok and because it's so easy it's all easy <laughs> Cause it's so easy to like make a video go viral. It's so easy to just spread fake news. Like it, you just have to post one thing and people will just believe it. Cause it's on TikTok.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it is personally a good idea for verified news sources like ITV and, and BBC to go on TikTok to reach out to the younger audiences. And for me, it is, I do use TikTok as a news source. I'll put my hands up to that. <laughs> but I, also, I don't use it as an only news source. I do cause I know I'm aware of fake news and there's so many fake news circulating around that you have to be careful of but it's good to use it as like one source but not your only source i think
0: that's a great point because how how often do people fact check what what they're reading on social media like i know i don't <laughs> um or if i do i just go to the um top newspapers and just hope that they're reporting on the you know factual stuff um yeah, I still need that one-on-one uh, uh, TikTok uh, TikTok uh, walkthrough Zara. So.
1: <laughs> we also have uh, Jennifer Jones here from the Scottish Sun, so
4: I've got a slightly different view on um, using TikTok as a journalist. Um, I think you may have noticed the last couple of years that TikTok has kind of taken off as even as a, a news source in terms of where newspapers find stories. Um, tends to be that TikTok will favour. Viral stories and often extreme versions of events will become popular online. Um, so naturally that works really well as a, a story in terms of um, a news story. So you might find that you see on the Sun pages um, stories where TikTokers have become um, like sources. Um, as a journalist, as a reporter, I have my concerns about having a TikTok um, for my work mainly because I'm print digital and a lot of the subjects I cover in hard news, having public social media presence where I am Jennifer Jones, talking about Jennifer Jones and all the things that she does, um, quite concerning for, um, it conflicts with what my day-to-day job is, however it works really well with broadcast journalists who are already on the television or or have podcasts or YouTube channels etc, so that's a very sort of multimedia medium. I've dabbled in it, as in I've tried it for um, running, like when running training. But I am very cautious about using it as an as a as an outlet for my own media because I tend to try not become the story. I want to try and move away from being um, Jennifer Jones, a person on the internet, to a reporter that's trying to break stories that nobody else is covering. And if you're doing behind the scenes about your job, you might risk run the risk of. Um, putting information out there about yourself that could um, either can the story because <laughs> you've shared too much or um, put yourself at risk as in, you know, people will discover where you live or they they find um, information on you that um, could backfire. So I think there's always that kind of uh, discussion about what sort of journalist you want to be and... Boundaries around personal and private. Was TikTok absolutely loves a personal story. It loves an overshare. It (laughs) absolutely (laughs) loves like that sort of thing. But you've got to think, if I as a journalist, do I want to have that information about me available to millions of people? Um, Because I see how viral some stories go. It's you can see from the other side of it. So it is a really interesting um, platform that can be utilised, but it does come with risks. We found
7: another group of people who do consume the news but they also selectively avoid some news some of the time. Uh, so when we ask people the first half of our samples, so they often or sometimes actively avoid the news these days. That, that's grown by about half since 2017. And, and the reasons for that, uh, over half of those avoiders say that news makes them feel depressed. It brings them mood down. and. Uh, almost half say there's just too much politics, uh, there's too much COVID-19, by which I think they mean that these sort of big, unresolvable questions are squeezing out other interesting or fun things that people might be interested in. That sense of relentless negative news um, is... is, is
1: Yeah, so one of the other interesting points that Nick Newman raised uh, when he spoke to the first year the other day was about the report called The News Avoidance. Mm -hmm. So, what's your thoughts
4: it's a difficult one, again, um, I guess because people share so much information about themselves. They tend to share links that they want to be associated with, so they want to um, present themselves online in the, the way that they want to be seen by their audience or their friends or their network. Um, when it comes to actual news news engagement, like people are clicking links to news websites, so they are clicking them more and they are accessing them through... Google Discover uh, Facebook Discover um, so people are looking at it are looking at the website but they might not admit they're looking at it (laughs) if that makes sense so they might be reading news but they wouldn't want to say which previously um, you'd always joke about what would buy a guardian and slip a son inside it so they could read the tabloids (laughs) so nowadays it's much easier to read newspapers that you might not want to to consider yourself a, a reader as such so it's an interesting one, people are certainly more informed, I think there's Obviously, uh, um, I feel that there's a kind of apathy because of the kind of political stalemates we've been under for the last several years, where politics hasn't really shifted much away from Brexit. In Scotland, certainly, we've got the independence debate kicking about as well. I think there's a sort of political apathy, and there's also a sort of, people are very concrete in their views now, so there's not much give and take. So when it comes to news, people are only reading things that they want to agree with and then that creates a sort of apathy because you're not really getting anything new from it so i don't know i think how do you how do you break um the reliance on people sticking in to their digging their heels in and sticking to the news that they're they're used to it's something that you're always having to think about as a journalist because you're having to sell your stories make them interesting enough that somebody wants to actually click it or even share it <laughs> and be brave enough to share it so um, certainly somebody's reading it, that's I always say, so they might not be sharing it, retweeting it, liking it publicly, but they certainly are reading the stories because they are getting picked up often in thousands and thousands of clicks, so yeah.
0: Do you think Covid has had, um, well I know, I know it's had some impact, but do you think it's had a big impact on news avoidance because Whenever I've spoken to uh, my circle of friends, um, they they actively avoid using social media for news um, just because COVID left them in a slump of yeah. just reading negative news all the time.
4: There's two. I think there's two things going on. I think Facebook is certainly moving away from becoming a news platform because it was getting uh, wrapped on the knuckles for too many extreme content. So there's that where the algorithm is actually... um is taking news away from people's feeds because we don't really have much control over what people see on their um on their feeds but also I think there's a kind of there is a personal I mean I certainly um try and avoid social media outside of work believe it or not so I try not to because there is a feeling of being trapped in the house with only your phone for company and I think more more and more people are probably going you know what I want to be out and about but they're still engaging with media I think I think media is all around us now it's more pervasive it's it's everywhere like you're going to the gym you're listening to a podcast you're trying to chill out at night you're on tiktok mm. there's, it's not as if media has went away um, and I don't think we, we think about news as papers and, and tv and, and radio where it actually it's, it's literally everywhere we look now so I don't know if there's as much an apathy um, of it so like we're we just like, trying to find spaces where we aren't bombarded with media all the time is quite difficult mm. certainly post-covid I think
3: as a journalist do you find yourself like being able to like disassociate like distract like put you and news as separate so you don't like when you're reading articles you just see it as a story rather yeah. than getting too into. It?
4: good question um so when i'm not at work we get papers we buy papers because newspapers don't have the feedback loop on it so you don't like you're not i want to get off my phone because my phone has my work on it and it has social media and it has everything so if i'm wanting to read to an actual news story where you get the papers on the weekend or the days off, right? As a journalist, yeah, you start to become quite good at the filter. So you start going story, 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 not interested. And you actually have to remind yourself to stop and read things properly. Like actually like a book. <laughs> like read a whole thing in context instead of trying to look for like the the next story or the next lead and stuff. So it is you do It's kind of like a blessing and a curse there's like a you you start to pick up a a knack for what a story is which is essentially what a journalist has to be able to be good at whilst at the same time still being you that likes to read things outside and the better journalists are the ones that still read you know and and are reading deeply
3: yeah that's what i found during covid is like a lot of it i was just more i just wanted to keep up to date and i just kind of started seeing it more as a story rather than seeing oh we're going into another lockdown as another like Sad, depressing thing that's going Mm -hmm. on. I just kind of kept it looking at it as a story so it wouldn't mentally
4: affect. Yeah, I think there's a, I think that you have to have a detachment and you need to sort of work that muscle. Like you have to be able to disassociate yourself from what's happening in front of you and you need to have a good support network around you so that when you log off your shift after doing quite a like Covid was quite intense because, um, I was working at a local paper at the time, we didn't have an editor. I was essentially responsible for a lot of the materials with very little experience and the local community was absolutely outraged at me for reporting on it because um, they thought it was, you know, invasive because we were reporting on it but actually many members of the community died. It was a very significant wave because it was the first drop of Kent variant that got to Scotland so we were on the front line of reporting this. And I had to find a way, like, they were all having a go at me for reporting it, and I had come home and I was like, I don't have access to my bubble, I don't have, I'm don't. i on my own, I don't, my family are 50 miles away, and it, was, it really started to kind of affect me, but it also strengthens you because you start to think, um, well, it is a story, and this is my job, and this is what I've signed up to do, and if something bad's happening in the community, my job is to go out and make sure it's told properly, so... You, you, you start to build that resilience um, around it. And I think that's a really good way of uh, treating significant events like COVID or even the Queen dying or um, the Prime Minister change. These are just events in time where your job might be to go out and do something and cover it for the, your editor tells you to go and do that and do this. And you're part of that bigger story. So it's quite cool
0: that way. So we'll include a link in the show notes to the digital news report, but if you want access to it directly, you can find it at digital news Report. that's all one word, digitalnewsreport.org. I just
1: want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and listening to our podcast and giving us uh, a good insight. <laughs>
4: of it's not a problem, <laughs> I haven't put you off.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a reminder that you're listening to Bang to Rights from the journalism students and staff at Manchester Metropolitan University. I'm Ruby Kaimkani.
3: And I'm Zara Gallimore. And I'm Tanya
0: Uller. And remember, you can subscribe to the podcast and give us a review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at RightsBang. Pete, stepping back a bit for a moment, we're on a new season, a new format for Bang to Rights. The podcast's been running for some time now, but it's been a in a bit of a hiatus because of the pandemic, hasn't it?
2: Yeah, it has. If if you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, you'll know that the feed's been kind of fractured of late. Bank to Rights began actually in 2017. It was as a podcast about media law. had initially initially had in mind that it would be a kind of helpful resource for journalism students here at MMU but also other journalism students around the country and we'd look at coverage of big court cases or stories that allowed us to delve into ethical issues in journalism. It went down really well actually with students and with journalism teachers all over the place. Now back in the day we covered things like challenging anonymity rulings in the family courts, protecting sources, reporting on bereavement as well as everything like Supreme Court hearings. But today, we're going from the UK's highest court right down to the other end of the judicial system in England and the magistrate's court. Because the law school at MMU has its own mock courtroom, all freshly kitted out with authentic judicial furniture, even benches, the whole caboodle. We regularly take the second years into the moot court to show them around and give them a feel of what it's like to be in a real live courtroom. Now that the public benches at Manchester Magistrates are open again, we're planning to take students on their first day in court later in the year. And after the session the other day, they told us that they found the preparation was really useful.
7: Learning about the way the courts work and everything has been very interesting. Like, even just seeing the layout of the courtrooms and everything like that was different than I expected, to be honest with you.
2: Well, but you guys, is this it? have you been in the court before? Never, no. no.
3: Yeah, um, it's interesting to see how, how the layout is. Um, even to hear from well, nice Carl? Yeah, it was nice to hear from an actual magistrate.
2: So, yeah, yeah. What about you? What was your impression?
7: It's, it's very it's very modern. It's kind of nice, but I wouldn't want to be stuck in here on a big court case, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think anybody will want to be in court anyway, but it's, it's nice in
2: it. And as well as hearing from students at the Moot Court, I spoke to my colleagues Dave Porter and to Carl McLaughlin. Carl's one of our Spanish language lecturers. He also doubles up as a real-life
5: magistrate. In terms of the layout of the room. It corresponds to what you would normally see. It's in much better condition, more seating available and it certainly does give the impression of a very professional and um, it's the ideal scenario for students to be introduced to and I think it would be very good if you could have sessions in here not just with the law students but with the journalism students reporting on those law cases. It would be the perfect marriage between the two I would say.
2: No, I mean, I think, I think that's a really good idea and it's something maybe that we, we could develop because I think um, there's still the, the whole aftermath of lockdown and the pandemic and it's still quite difficult to get the same access that we're used to, to to the courts. Do you feel that in uh, you're working as a magistrate that the court system is
5: beginning to return to normal? Yes, we're seeing many more people appear, whether it be friends, family, reporters, interested parties beginning to appear at the back of the courts um, after a substantial period when it was virtually just prosecution, defense, legal advisor and magistrates and probation. So it's good to see because it's very, very important to bear in mind that what you're doing as a magistrate is not just confined to the, the small area in front of you where the professionals are, but how other people would perceive your reasoning your logic and your decision and it's very very important to maybe think about those people at the back of the room in terms of what they hear and what your outcome is because there's nothing worse than somebody who's totally puzzled somebody with no vested interest when they're totally puzzled by the logic of your decision so i think it's good to have people back i think it should be public it should be open and the more the better
2: And so Dave, we we are hoping that now the pandemic's over, the lockdown's over, we are hoping to get to real life courtrooms um, in the next wee while. But um, the idea here is just to let the students see the layouts, feel what it's like to be in a a room like this and to see where the different people are so that hopefully they're not completely bewildered and overawed when they get to court itself.
3: Yeah, because in lectures we talk about, you know, the courtroom, the bench, the chairman, um, the procedures, we talk about bail, suspended sentences, community orders and you know we've been in hundreds I've been in hundreds of court cases reporting them I'm sure you have and we kind of take it for granted um, but being told about this in a lecture is not quite the same as listening to Carl being in the room and then of course we do supplement that with you know trips uh, during uh, well we're going to go during future me week as employability events and we do often trips to magistrates crown and inquests that tends to be merely a master's group, but everyone's freely available to come and usually we get a few takers. And that really is a, another experience because, you know, it, it opens a whole world of ex- different side of the world to them. Dave Porter, and earlier you heard from Magistrate Carl McLaughlin. And that's about it from us here today. You've been listening to Bang to Rights from the Manchester Met journalism students.
1: You can see more of where really news, sport, culture, fashion and lots more on the Northern Quota website. That's northernquota, all one word, dot org.
0: Thanks to Pete, to Alison Miller and to Jennifer Jones. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Northern Quota and also follow the discussion on legal things and mobile journalism on Bang to Rights on Twitter at Rights Bank. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Speak to you then.